Sunday Night Health Show podcast. Tonight on the program, we're talking about mental illness, resentment, COVID as a neurological illness, and a real pain in the butt, hemorrhoids. The Sunday Night Health Show podcast starts now. And now, Maureen's Health Headline. You know, mental illness is so common, and yet we don't talk about it. It's still stigmatized, and I receive lots of emails about mental illness, about depression. I see lots of patients in my clinical practice who have underlying mental illness or comorbidities such as depression and anxiety, bipolar disorder. I wanted to read an email that I had received a little while ago, actually. Um, Thank you for sending in your emails to me, nursetalk at hotmail.com. I do appreciate it. Uh, Hello, Maureen. I have suffered from depression for about 20 years, and it never, ever made any sense to me. Like most people, I mistakenly assumed that depression was about the circumstances of life. It is called depression, after all, but that's a misnomer. Depression isn't caused by a depressed mood. It's only a symptom. In fact, it's possible to have a DSM diagnosis, Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, it's DSM for those of you who don't know what that is, diagnosis of depression and have no mood symptoms at all, as in the about 5% of cases. In my opinion, depression is actually an inflammatory condition brought on by chronic stress. Cortisol, the stress hormone, is what controls the fight or flight response to acute stress. You need to think fast. So cortisol triggers an instant anti-inflammatory response that lets your brain focus like a laser. However, when stress becomes chronic, cortisol becomes chronically pro-inflammatory, and that is chronically painful. The pain literally becomes intolerable, and it is unrelenting. It's there when you go to bed at night. It's there when you wake up in the morning. And naturally, you start to see death as a preferable way to living like that. In fact, the pain can get so intolerable that death becomes a necessity for some people, and you start to think about it all the time. People with severe depression have become stress intolerant. What would be a minor stress to somebody else causes pain that's beyond the individual's ability to deal. Almost any source of stress or combination of stressors can take this person to the brink. For me, the 25 years of depression ended when I changed my diet. I added a can of sardines to my daily diet in hopes of ending other kinds of chronic inflammation. It worked, but in the process, process, It also ended the depression. For 25 years, I'd never had a good day, but for the last 13, I've never had a bad day, regardless of how things were going in my day-to-day life. It has almost nothing to do with that. It's only about inflammation that is caused by chronic stress. Incidentally, adding fish to my diet cured other chronic conditions that I had, like sleep apnea, rosacea, and insomnia. I continue to include fish in my daily diet and take high doses of omega-3. The result is that I'm happy all the time and continue to enjoy perfect life at the ripe old age of 75. (laughs) That's very rare. Yes, it certainly is very rare. And that may or may not be the case. There may have been other situations. Mental illness is so complex. And, and I do, I would like to say that if you or someone close to you is experiencing an emergency or is at an immediate risk of of harm, you can call triple zero. Um, Beyond Blue at 1-300-224-6636 or Lifeline on 1311. Um, Sorry, uh, that's not the right number. Um, But you can call Beyond Blue 1-300-224-6636 or reach out uh, to somebody. Mental illness, it's a health problem that is a global 
problem. It, it knows no bounds. If you have a lot of money, that doesn't prevent you from potentially getting mental illness. It affects people's thoughts, mood, behavior, or the way that they perceive the world around them. It causes tremendous distress for some people. Uh, it is a, an extremely common uh, condition. Anxiety is the number one mental illness. There are different types of mental illnesses. There's mood disorders. Talked a little bit about uh, depression there, one person's perspective on depression. Um, mood disorders such as bipolar disorder. There's also anxiety disorders, OCD, obsessive compulsive disorders, and anxiety disorder. There are personality disorders like borderline personality disorders, and there are psychotic disorders like schizophrenia. There's also something called schizoaffective disorder. Uh, there are eating disorders as well, and trauma-related disorders like post-traumatic stress disorder also. And many people suffer from substance abuse disorders, and it oftentimes seems like a mental illness, some of the behavior seems like a mental illness. In a way it is, they are, are oftentimes treating something, some underlying pain. There are about 300 mental disorders listed in the DSM-5, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Health Disorders. And that's a handbook that has been published by the American Psychiatric Association. It's still very complex, not only to diagnose, but to treat people, because oftentimes mental illness is diagnosed through behaviors or thoughts or reporting of symptoms or reporting of symptoms over a period of time, which can be very challenging and difficult for people who are experiencing mental illness. There's, there's no blood test. There's no scan. There's nothing that, that is tangible, objective, that health professionals can use to help to diagnose and treat mental illness or to identify mental illness. There are lots of different things that um, psychiatrists and medical doctors and psychologists and counselors can utilize to treat mental illness. But um, oftentimes it's a, a taking a stab in the dark. It's we'll try this medication, we'll try that dose, we'll try this combination of medications, we'll try antipsychotics and antidepressants. Oh, well the antidepressant might make somebody manic. We'll try mood stabilizers and antipsychotics together, for example, with uh, schizophrenia or schizoaffective disorder, antipsychotics and antidepressants. There are so many different types of symptoms of mental illness and every mental illness, and there's 300, as I mentioned in the DSM-5, has a different set of symptoms. So severe dieting, might be a sign that somebody has an eating disorder, but it might not be either. Hearing voices can be a sign of psychosis. Visual um, hallucinations can also be a sign of psychosis. Thinking somebody is under the bed or in the closet, really feeling, really feeling that somebody is there can actually be a sign of a delusion or hallucination. There could be this relent relentless feeling after childbirth of hopelessness, of not being able to uh, experience joy at which ought to be the most joyful time of a person's life. You can see that in postpartum depression. People with anxiety have excessive worries or fears 
and that can impact their their life. They can fear that they've left the stove on or that they didn't lock the door or that they are going to harm somebody when they would never harm somebody ever. But yet they have this thought that's unrelenting and that they can't get out of their head. People with depression oftentimes have significant sadness or a very low mood. And so some of the signs of mental illness to look out for, and, and it's also very confusing, especially for people who love them, And but it's really hard for the person who's experiencing it because it can be confusing, having unusual or illogical thoughts, thoughts that just don't make sense. For example, somebody who has postpartum depression who doesn't feel the joy they expected to feel once the baby's been born. People can have increased or decreased sleep. They can have increased or decreased appetite. There can be a lack of motivation, isolation, uh, substance use and abuse, taking less interest in their personal hygiene or personal appearance. Also decreased performance, whether that be in, in work or in school. Hearing voices, as I mentioned, which is something that is common in schizo schizoaffective disorder and schizophrenia. People isolate, as I mentioned. Um, difficulty with remembering things, so memory issues. Not being able to follow a conversation, you can see that in, in depression. And so, you know, it's, it's mental health is created is something that I often say, but sometimes it's genetic. What causes mental illness? Researchers are still trying to figure that out. There's, because there's no one cause, but I'm going to go through some of what they speculate. Talking about mental illness, one in every five Canadians suffers from a mental illness in a given year, and almost half the population has suffer, suffered from a mental disorder at some time in their life. If you are experiencing trouble, if you are thinking uh, that this is there's no way out, the 988 is a suicide and crisis lifeline in Canada. That That's 988. Please reach out. It does feel for some people that there's no way out, but uh, there is treatment and it's very helpful to speak to somebody. So we often wonder why people get mental illness. I, I see this in my clinical practice as a foundation of a lot of the issues that occur in a relationship. And uh, we reviewed some of the signs, um, but there's a number of different reasons, yet we don't know exactly why. We're not 100%, but genetic factors certainly um, may mean that you may have a propensity toward a mental illness. So if you have somebody that is genetically close to you with a mental illness, that can increase your risk. But just because there's a, a sibling or a parent that has mental illness, it doesn't necessarily mean that you will as well. Drug and alcohol, or substance use and abuse can, can trigger a manic episode, it can trigger hallucinations, it can trigger an episode of psychosis, and in particular, drugs like cocaine, marijuana, people think marijuana is benign. I've, I've seen far too many times when that, especially the pot that is around today, uh, that has caused mental health issues for many people, including paranoia, um, also psychosis, delusions. Uh, there are some medical 
conditions or hormonal changes can actually cause mental illness as well. And adverse childhood events are something else that can contribute to mental illness. They can contribute to anxiety and depression. Um, you know, abuse and neglect can also increase your risk of acquiring a, a mental illness, and especially in your lifetime, if, if another event, the birth of a child, for example, um, can bring on um, a mental illness for uh, a person. Uh, it doesn't necessarily have to be the, the mother. Um, it can certainly, we know that um, fathers, men also experience postpartum depression, and we're actually calling it antepartum depression because it can happen during pregnancy. Of course, traumatic events or chronic stress can actually lead to mental illness. It can lead to anxiety and depression. It can trigger an episode of psychosis as well. Financial problems, work problems, increase the risk of mental illness. Also, and you know, sometimes people feel like there's just no way out, that they feel like they have no other option. Um, oftentimes, thinking that they want to self-harm or take their own lives. As I mentioned, 988 is the number in Canada to call uh, if you are experiencing such thoughts. Um, there's also some personality contributing factors, um, like perfectionism, for example. That's a big one. A lot of people are perfectionists. And you know the thing is, not everybody is perfectionistic in the same manner. Some people want the most perfectly clean house. Others want um, their relationship to be perfect. I mean, even the email that I had read, the person said that they'd never had a bad day in the past 13 years, but their 25 years prior to that, there were lo loads of bad days. Everybody has a bad day here and there, even me. <laughs> we all have bad days. I mean, that's just a fact of life. And that doesn't necessarily mean that you have a mental illness, but it's very important if you're experiencing signs and symptoms like low mood, anxiety, fear, heart racing, palpitations, um, seeing things, hearing voices, that you take that first step and go and see a doctor. You can return to good mental health. You can actually help yourself in so many ways with excellent sleep, um, excellent nutrition, cutting out, <laughs> not just down, cutting out, um, alcohol and other drug use, those are not ways to actually numb your pain or to treat your pain. Unfortunately, as I mentioned, there's no blood test, no brain scan that can confirm a mental illness for you, but your doctor can help you sort through this. And, you know, you might start out with one diagnosis, but that it may be on a spectrum. And we're, we're kind of seeing that lately, that schizophrenia and schizoaffective disorder and bipolar, they're on a bit of a spectrum. And so the diagnoses may change for you. What you have now may not be what you initially were diagnosed with, and, and that's okay. You really want to get to the proper diagnosis so that you can be treated appropriately. And the, the most commonly prescribed medications for mental illness are, are antidepressants, and they can be used for anxiety or depression. They're not, it's a bit of a misnomer calling them anti antidepressants, but they can be treated for, they, they are used for anxiety as well. But uh, therapy is excellent. Lifestyle changes, exercise has helped to, uh, help, exercise definitely helps to relieve anxiety and depression. And there's also meditation is very beneficial. Studies show that it can change the brain, relaxation strategies, and just having a good community, good support from your family.
Hemorrhoids. They're also called piles. They're swollen veins in your anus or lower rectum, and they're very similar to varicose veins. And they can develop inside your rectum, so they can be internal hemorrhoids or under the skin around the anus. That, that would be external hemorrhoids. And about 75% of adults will experience hemorrhoids from time to time. So it doesn't necessarily mean that uh, they're going to bother you tremendously, but for some people, they can be a real pain. They're very, very common, as I said. Um, they're swollen, enlarged veins. They can be painful and uncomfortable. They can also cause rectal bleeding. A lot of people get very uh, fearful when they see that frank red blood in the toilet after they've had a bowel movement. Uh, they're associated with constipation. Uh, we're all born with hemorrhoids, but when they're kind of at baseline, if you will, they don't bother us. But when they become swollen or enlarged, they can produce very irritating symptoms. And so about one in 20 Canadians have symptomatic hemorrhoids. Uh, they affect people of all ages, races, ethnicities, sexes, but they're more common as you age. Isn't everything? <laughs> this aging is not for the faint of heart. Um, this, they affect more than half of people over the age of 50, but you're more likely to get hemorrhoids um, if you have these particular issues. So you have a greater risk if you're overweight or you have obesity. During pregnancy, people are more likely to get hemorrhoids and they can be a problem postpartum as well. If you have a low amount of fiber in your diet, and we've talked about diet on this program, of course, and the importance of fiber. If you have chronic constipation, that's what I see a lot. I often say that, you know, 80% of the people in the area where I practice <laughs> have um, constipation and the rest have diarrhea, um, which is so true. It doesn't seem like anybody has one normal log formed stool every day um, because I don't see those patients. <laughs> I don't see those ones that are out there exercising, drinking a lot of water and eating a high fiber diet filled with green leafy vegetables and um, lots of uh, cruciferous vegetables like cauliflower and broccoli and um, potatoes even. Um, so people who are eating healthily and getting exercise and making sure that they have enough water-based fluids in their diet. If you regularly lift heavy objects, you are at risk of not only hemorrhoids, but other issues to your pelvic floor as well. And, um, you know, finding the bathroom as a little bit of an escape from the daily life of, uh, of the kids and the spouse and <laughs> whatever else, the cleaning, whatever else is going on. So if you sit on the toilet for a long time, you're at greater risk of getting hemorrhoids. Or if you strain while having bowel movements, that's never good. Um, so as I mentioned, there's a few different types of hemorrhoids. They can be inside or outside. There's external ones, internal ones, obviously the internal are inside your rectum and the external are underneath your skin around your anus. And the anus is the canal where the stool comes out of, uh, where it's, it's expelled. The external hemorrhoids can be itchy and painful and every now and again, they'll bleed. And sometimes they fill with blood that can clot. It's not dangerous, but it can result in pain and swelling. It typically, I mean, you always want to see your doctor if you have any type of bleeding, if you see any type of vaginal bleeding, rectal bleeding. Um, but uh, bright red blood is usually 
okay, a small, a small amount, but you definitely have to go and see your doctor. Both internal and external hemorrhoids can prolapse, and I've certainly seen patients that have had this. And in fact, I had to take a video <laughs> one time of a patient's uh, prolapsed hemorrhoid because the is it when it was a very uh, an older patient in her 90s, and it was very difficult to get her to the doctor. And when she did go to the doctor, there was they were unable to actually see it. And so I was the only one that was witnessing this. So I remember taking a video and sending it off to the doctor. And that certainly helped with uh, the diagnosis and the treatment because people can have a rectal prolapse as well, but, the, but these were hemorrhoids. Um, and so when it prolapses, it means they've stretched your, the hemorrhoids have stretched and they bulge outside of your anus. This is just such a lovely subject, isn't it? But it's an important one because they can be so uh, challenging to deal with and it can be so painful and some people actually need surgery uh, to deal with hemorrhoids but there are some other things that um, that people can do we'll get into that but you know you might have um, hemorrhoids that cause itching pain bleeding there can also be a tear in the lining of your anus and that can cause an anal fissure and that's like a passageway and you know you do need a healthcare provider to do a physical exam and you know, they, there may be some tests that you need uh, to actually make the proper diagnosis. This is why I get nervous when I'm on Instagram or TikTok, <laughs> um, especially Instagram. We see a lot of people who don't have a medical background, who don't actually clinically see patients in person. And, and so they're giving advice and because they've read it in a book and then they're just spitting it out afterward, but they've never actually gone to school for it. But more importantly, they've never actually examined patients, seen patients, treated patients and you can get inappropriate care when that happens. And oftentimes people are just trying to sell their goods, sell their wares. And, um, you know, there's a lot of snake oil salesmen out there um, telling you so that they can capitalize on you and take your hard earned money. I had a patient who came to see me one time. Uh, she had gone to a drugstore before she saw me and she had purchased like $400 worth of stuff. She was a woman of limited income. And um, she bought a whole bunch of junk. Nothing was going to help her, but, you know, she'd heard it advertised or something. And anyway, I diagnosed her, treated her, and she was like, I wish I came here first. I'm like, return all this stuff. Return all this junk. It's not going to help you. Um, so beware. Just keep in mind that straining puts pressure on on the veins in your anus or rectum. So you don't want to strain. You want to think of these as varicose veins that affect your bottom. So the symptoms of hemorrhoids, itchy anus, hard lumps near your anus that feel sore, they might feel tender, they might ache a bit, you might have pain in your anus, especially when you sit and you could have some rectal bleeding, as I mentioned. There, you know, the prolapse hemorrhoids can be very painful and extremely uncomfortable, and you can feel them bulging outside of your anus, and you might even push them back inside. You might want to put a little lube on before you do that. Um, so it's very important that you actually see a 
healthcare provider who can do a digital rectal exam. They, they insert a gloved, lubricated finger into your rectum to feel for those swollen veins. You made it an anoscopy, which is an anoscope. So it's a lighted tube and that views the lining of your anus and rectum. Or you might even need a sigmoidoscope and that's a lighted tube with a camera. And that views a lot or allows the healthcare provider to visualize the lower part of your colon and rectum. Sometimes a flexible sigmoidoscopy is used or a rigid sigmoidoscopy, which is a proctoscopy. The tests are uncomfortable, but they're not painful. Um, and you can typically have these done in the doctor's office on an outpatient basis. They don't require you to have anesthesia and you can go home the same day. So there are some complications of hemorrhoids. If you bleed a lot, you might get anemia. You might get blood clots in the external hemorrhoids. You can get an infection. You can get skin tags. That's a flap of tissue that hangs off of the skin. And you can get strangulated hemorrhoids, which is the muscles in the anus cut off the blood flow because you have a prolapsed internal hemorrhoid. But there are certainly ways that you can treat hemorrhoids at home. But keep in mind, they often go away on their own without any treatment. But sometimes you might have pain and bleeding, and that might last a week or 10 days. But in the meantime, you could take these steps to help to ease your symptoms. So there's lots of over-the-counter medications that contain lidocaine that will help with the pain or witch hazel or even hydrocortisone to apply to the affected area. You want to increase your water-based fluids because that will actually soften your stool. You definitely want to increase your fiber intake through diet and supplements as well. You want to stick to or kind of aim for 20 to 35 grams of daily fiber intake per day. And this is something I feel is miraculous for people and it's not given enough um, time, <laughs> sit time, is soaking in a warm bath, a sits bath for 10 to 20 minutes a day, three or four times a day. You just want to fill up your bathtub with like two inches of water and add some Epsom salts to it and just sit there. Um, that's all you need and it can work miraculously. You can also buy sits baths on Amazon and they can sit right on the toilet. And excuse me, sometimes they have a little pump with them. And so that pump can actually pump um, some water right on your anus or your hemorrhoids to give you further relief as well. But you want to stick with that um, because that can be very helpful. But I recommend it three or four times a day and you'll see those hemorrhoids reduce in size over time. You may want to, but not too many, take some non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, NSAIDs, like um, Advil, um, to help with the pain and inflammation, or you might want to take acetaminophen as well. Um, you know, you might want to get a bidet on your toilet. They, those also can be, for about $80, you can get one of those. Um, I don't sell them, <laughs> but you can buy them on Amazon. You can get everything on Amazon. <laughs> I don't work for Amazon either. Um, I should anyway, um, because of the packages that are delivered. No, I'm just kidding on the daily. Um, but you can get a bidet. And so instead of wiping and sometimes people, you know, wipe hard with this harsh toilet paper, um, in fact, it just reminds me of when the pandemic began. For some reason, I was completely focused on toilet paper and I ordered so much toilet paper. It just kept coming in for two years. <laughs> anyway, I have enough toilet paper to last me a lifetime. Um, so you do want to take some over-the-counter medications that can help with pain. 
Uh, you might want to use flushable wet wipes if you don't want to invest in the $80 bidet, uh, which is kind of nice though, those toilet bidets. Um, you can use the wet wipes and just pat and clean your bottom after you have a bowel movement. Um, if these don't work, these options don't work, healthcare providers might treat your hemorrhoids in a different way. They may use a rubber band ligation and that's a, they place a small rubber band, not one you find in your kitchen drawer. Uh, it has to be done under the guidance of a physician under the um, in a practice of a healthcare provider. Um, but they place a band around the base of the hemorrhoid and that cuts off the blood supply to the vein. There's electrocoagulation is another option. That's electric current, stops the blood flow. It's all about the blood flow. There's an infrared coagulation. That's a small probe that's inserted into the rectum and that transmits heat to get rid of the hemorrhoid. Sclerotherapy is another way, which is a chemical that's injected into the swollen vein and that destroys the hemorrhoidal tissue. Uh, there are some surgical treatments, but I'll tell you, I've heard from people that these are brutal. Hemorrhoidectomy, some people have severe pain with these. This, it's a surgical, um, it's an operation. It removes the large external hemorrhoids or the prolapsed internal ones. There's also hemorrhoid, hemorrhoidal stapling, and that's a stapling instrument, removes an internal hemorrhoid or it pulls a prolapsed internal hemorrhoid back inside of your anus and holds it there. It's probably not something you've talked this in depth about, <laughs> um, hemorrhoids, but it's probably something that has affected you. So remember, don't sit or strain too hard on the toilet. Go to the toilet when the urge hits. Don't delay your bowel movements. Drink plenty of water, high fiber, stay physically active, stay on the move. Being on the move keeps your bowels moving. And take laxatives or use enemas only as recommended by your healthcare provider, providers because too many laxatives or enemas can make it hard for your body to regulate how you have a bowel movement. Most hemorrhoids resolve themselves within a week with the at-home treatments that I mentioned, but sometimes for some people they need a medical procedure or even surgery. But if you have abdominal pain, chronic constipation, fever and chills, nausea and vomiting, severe rectal bleeding and pain, you will want to contact your doctor as well. And you want to ask when you go to the doctor, you want to ask them, what's the etiology? Or, I mean, how did you get these hemorrhoids? What's the best? Because that will guide the treatment. What's the best treatment for you? What are the lifestyle changes you can make? And when can you expect the symptoms to improve? And what are some of the complications that you should look out for? Is there somebody that you resent in your life? Is there somebody you're so angry with you cannot forgive them? Might it be not anger? Could it be resentment? You don't even realize it. There's no one cause of resentment and oftentimes people don't realize that they're resenting somebody. But most cases of resentment involve an underlying sense of being mistreated or wronged by somebody else. We all experience frustration and disappointment. That's why forgiveness is so important. But sometimes the feelings about something something that somebody did to you it can be so overwhelming for you. They can contribute to resentment. Anger is a normal, healthy emotion and it's appropriate in certain situations. It's also appropriate to get over it, but to not to harbor feelings of anger and disdain and hatred towards somebody else, leaving them out of your life or treating them poorly or ignoring them. 
or talking badly about them. Resentment is closely related to, but it's not the same as anger. Resentments are described as negative feelings toward someone or something that stems from the past. It's oftentimes the re-experiencing of past wrongs that were real or perceived and the old feelings of anger connected to them. So it could be something that happened to you in your life earlier on when you were a child or an adolescent. And then you meet somebody and they do a similar thing to you or you perceive that they're doing a similar thing to you. For example, a love that got away. And then you think somebody else is the cause of a love getting away. And so you resent that person when that's not even the case. Or you don't heal from your childhood traumas and then you blame the closest person in your life because they're moving on with their lives, with their life. And so you resent them for being happy. You resent them for being successful because you feel you can't be happy or you can't be successful. Or you resent somebody because they've made more money. If, you, if you've learned anything from this show, I hope you've learned that money doesn't matter in life. It's not the key to happiness. It's not the key to joy, those simple joys of life that we can experience every day. But I will tell you that you are robbing yourself of joy when you resent anybody. It's an extremely unhealthy emotion. There, you're re-experiencing, you have not processed the issues that you've had in the past. You're holding on to anger. There's a saying that when you resent somebody, you become their slave. So you are a slave to them. You're actually thinking it's the opposite, but it's not. And the stronger the resentment is, the more time you spend thinking about it, get caught up in it. You get caught up in the anger that's connected to it and that impacts your life. That impacts the joy, that impacts the happiness that you're missing out on. Holding on to a resentment is like drinking poison and then waiting for somebody else to die. There, this is just so unhealthy and it's also so difficult for people to forgive other people and then they hang on to it. So let's just get right down to how you can get past resentment. You want to identify and allow yourself to feel those underlying emotions that anger may be superimposed upon such hurt, such as hurt or fear. And you want to be actively present and accept the feelings, even if they're uncomfortable and they're going to be uncomfortable. And then you might even feel badly that you behaved in this particular manner. You want to express anger and resentment differently. So you want to share these feelings with safe, supportive people, journal about them, release them through physical activity. Resist the urge to be a channel for anger and resentment of others. You can be jealous of people, envious, but you want to Resist the urge to join in on others' negativity. And practice applying the understanding that unless you've learned how to change the past, it's as good as it's ever going to get because nobody can change the past. 
You got questions? She's got answers. The nurse is in for Nurse Talk. Welcome to the second hour of the Sunday Night Health Show. If you have any comments or questions, the number to call is one 399 9898 That's 1-877-399-9898. I probably said that too quickly. Some people have <laughs> commented on that before. So 1-877-399-9898. Um, because we have the doctor in the house. And so you might want to text as well. Lots of people send their text messages in. Somebody texted in about getting hernias from lifting heavy objects. That's a subject we'll cover in an upcoming show. Um, anyway, in this second hour of the program, we're going to be talking about something that I converse with people about quite a bit, whether they're in my clinical practice or outside of my clinical practice. And uh, that is, is cheating the answer to a sexless marriage? And uh, of course, we celebrated St. Patty's Day. And with a name like mine, you know that I deserve the day off. <laughs> That's what one of my colleagues said to me on Friday. Um, but I was going to read to you one of my favorite poems. Um, but right now, Dr. Tomi Mitchell joins me on the line. She's a medical doctor, deals in wellness and performance, burnout. She prevents burnout and overwhelm so that people can improve their productivity in the workplace. And uh, we're going to be talking about long COVID and where do we go from here? The place we're at here, which is, looks like the president of the United States has deemed it, uh, the emergencies, uh, the that are no longer going to be in effect as of May 11th. A lot of people have interpreted that as that the pandemic will be over on May 11th. Well, I want to hear what the doctor has to say about that. Good evening, Dr. Mitchell. Good evening, Maureen. How are you today? I am fine. Thank you. How are you? I'm great. Thanks. Oh, good. Good. Now, I'm still dealing with patients who ha are getting COVID and they're getting sick. Um, some of them are young. I'm going to say 30% of the people that I know. Uh, I do some consulting around COVID and um, they're getting, they're about 30% are getting sick. And I'm going to say half of those are young, young people, people in their twenties. Um, you know, I've, I had even twenties, thirties, I had a 42 year old shortness of breath, um, had to almost go to the emergency room. Things, you know, with the new therapeutics that we have, um, they ended up taking Paxlovid but other people with fever, chills, muscle aches, you know, sick for six or seven days. Um, are you, people who are still getting COVID and some are still dying from it? Yes, people are definitely still getting COVID. And I'm sure the numbers are grossly underrepresented because not like before where we had like drive-through testing everywhere uh -huh. and, you know, a rash to get like a rush to get home testing kits, but definitely I see COVID every month. It's there. Mm -hmm. It hasn't gone uh -huh. away. Uh -huh. I, I was speaking to a colleague recently and um, he's a mask wearer. I'm a mask wearer. <laughs> I feel naked without it now. Um, I feel I look better with it on. Covers most of my face, some sunglasses and a hat. We're all set. Um, but, you know, he said, I, you know, I've been, I've been wearing my mask. I, I wear it wherever I go. I limit, you know, I don't go into, into restaurants and, 
And he said, I haven't gotten COVID yet. And I said, me either. And he's like, oh, really? You know, like as though, as though that was odd, you know, um, unusual because everyone has this perception that everyone has gotten it. And certainly 16 million Americans have gotten it and 1.6 million Canadians have gotten it. And, you know, millions of people around the world have gotten COVID. Um, but there's a lot of people who haven't gotten COVID because but we don't talk about those people because they don't come forward saying, I don't have COVID <laughs> or I didn't get COVID. You don't want to say it. I'm knocking on wood, by the way, that I've, yeah. that I've said that. And I'm somebody who, uh, because of the nature of some of the work that I do um, with COVID consulting, I'm tested three times a week. So I've been tested for, you know, a few years now. So I would know. I did have one yeah. respiratory infection. I tested negative. It killed me to get up and go and get tested. Um, but I did it and because I was so sick, but I, I had a bronchial infection. Um, so there are people that haven't gotten COVID. Is that a fair statement? Yes, they are. But I also know people who haven't tested for COVID. Like they just right, refuse to get tested. So that kind of just, just because you don't know you have it doesn't mean it's not there and impacting you, you know. Um, but yes, there are people who claim they, you know, who've never got it to test regularly, you know, so that's and great. None of the, te- none of the tests are all that sensitive or, or sp- the, the home tests anyway, the sensitivity and yeah. specificity are about 40%. And even I say that I tested three times a week with a PCR test, you know, for the past two and a half years. Um, but you know what? I still could have gotten it. <laughs> Potentially, because Potentially, there's more false negatives. Yeah, there's more false negatives than false positives. Everybody thinks that, at least in the population that I'm dealing with now, uh, they are surprised if they get it because they think it's a false positive. And I often say, yeah. you know, no. we actually have more false negatives than we do false positives. So, I mean, I, I understand that I may have had it, and you know, but the big thing about getting COVID, one of the big reasons that I did not want to get COVID, was because of the risk of long COVID. Tell me about long COVID. All right. So this is a condition where individuals have contracted COVID and their symptoms are still persisting at least three months after the infection. And we're now three years post, well, in the pandemic, whatever you want to call it. And it can last for years. There are people who got infected right at the beginning and we're still having severe symptoms right now. So basically three months from initial infection. That's the definition of long COVID. And so what always made me a little bit nervous early on was when people lost their sense of taste or smell. And and that said to me, there's an impact here on the brain, the olfactory. Huge. Um, yeah. yeah. And so I, I knew then that mm, this is not something that I, I don't want to lose my sense of taste or smell. Um, I'm not even a foodie, but I just didn't want to. But it's also, you know, obviously there's impact. What are some of the signs and symptoms that people who have long COVID are experiencing? Um, Long fatigue, um, brain fog, um, racing heartbeat, changes in mood, um, just a myriad of symptoms. And it can also present as like, Psychiatric-like symptoms like anxiety, worsening depression, PTSD, like there's so many symptoms and we're still really trying to figure it all out. But those are the most common. And and people don't have to have had a significant infection 
to experience long COVID. Is that correct? That is correct. And that, I think that's kind of where people need to understand it. You don't have to be in the ICU on a ventilator to experience long COVID. Right. Yes. And, and as you mentioned, you know, th this can continue. I, I have patients in my clinical practice who after apparently clearing the virus from their bodies are still three years later, still suffering with e exhaustion, um, cognition, cognitive issues. Yeah. They, they, they can't think clearly, um, no longer able to work. Um, yes. And so these symptoms have persisted long after that initial infection, um, that initial post-acute, you know, sequelae of COVID-19. And, you know, this uh, patients who are experiencing pain, uh, brain fog, they can't remember yeah. things beyond where they can't remember where they put their keys. It's impacting their relationships. Um, you know, it's, but now that doctors understand that this could be a neurological um, disease, how can that help them to focus treatments? Well, you know, first, I know it's becoming more and more well-known, but I don't think it's really established firmly in the medical community that this is a thing, right? Mm -hmm. um, but how can it improve symptoms? Well, hey, number one, when somebody's complaining of these horrible symptoms, to actually listen to them and validate that I this is not just this is not in your head, like this is real, and then typically we treat the symptoms as they come along. Like there's not like one pill that fixes everything. It's like if there's an issue with the postural hyper hypotension, we treat that. If there's uh -huh. uh, focus issues, we might give you a stimulant. So it's it's depends on how they present. Basically, there's no like uh -huh. magic, you know, treatment for everyone. Yeah, I I had you mentioned um you know signs of that seemingly are like mental illnesses, like anxiety and depression. I've had patients who have had significant mood swings and, and also like almost a painful hypersensitivity to sounds. Like, yeah. they, you know, somebody opened the silverware drawer in the house and took out silverware. They, they described it as just, they just felt like the pain was just going through them. A little bit, you say it's not well established in the medical community, this long COVID. It reminds me a little bit of chronic fatigue syndrome, which oh, is, a, yeah. is a diagnosis of exclusion. And it's almost like, you know, because there were two sides of this story. Some people believed in COVID. Some people didn't. <laughs> some people yeah. just feel like it's a little cold. Uh, mm -hmm. And some people feel it isn't. But it isn't your typical little cold. Yeah. Because it's a no. little cold that you might end up having long-term fatigue and, and brain fog and pain for years is, is what it seems. So I don't know. It's, it's very difficult. And I know that a lot of patients suffer with this. And then it, once again, especially for women, oftentimes doctors dismiss women when they complain of kind of these, you know, fatigue, malaise, brain fog, post-traumatic stress disorder, you know, not remembering yeah. things like they might be dismissed as, hysterical or it's all in your head and that can or lead it's to menopause <laughs> it's menopause maybe it's me maybe it's menopause yeah. um, <laughs> absolutely isn't it all menopause oh yeah everything <laughs> is menopause <laughs> 
My guest is Dr. Tommy Mitchell, and we are talking about long COVID. Dr. Mitchell, one study found that in people with neurological COVID symptoms, so the cognitive issues and the sense of smell and, and taste, that the immune system seemed to be activated specifically in the central nervous system, and that created inflammation. But the brain inflammation probably wasn't caused by the virus. It was probably caused by the immune activation. And so that brain was inflamed and especially around blood vessels and the, the immune cells, the macrophages had been stirred up and they just chew away at things. They produce all kinds of free radicals, cytokines. So it's this overwhelming blanket bombing almost that ends up causing a lot of damage and they're, they're really hard to shut down. And so they persist for a long time. And this could be what is causing that persistent inflammation in the brain associated with the neurological um, symptoms of COVID-19. So with this, um, is this something that doctors can, or researchers can try and find treatments around brain inflammation and, and seeing that some patients might need anti-inflammatories, for example, and other patients might need rehab or cognitive training. Is, is this the kind of direction that we're going to uh, head with, neuro, with um, long COVID? This is a really good question because I remember at the beginning, this was like the wild, wild rest, treating patients with COVID. And we did know that there's this, ma this massive inflammatory response, which can cause what you just said. And the idea was we gave steroids to reduce that response. Now, that was then, but we still have a long way to go as far as therapy. That is something we need to um, really dis discuss because we need to treat this early because if we wait till the nuclear bomb goes off in your brain, then the long-lasting effects of this quote-unquote radiation, this cyclokine response, et cetera, et cetera, can be devastating. So really, we have to get ahead of this illness. And that's uh -huh. understanding people understanding that COVID is not um, nine, even though it's, we're going to quote unquote live with it. It's not going away. It's not benign. Like it's not innocent. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. And a lot of the research has found that the virus can linger in the brain for months. And that's what's causing a lot of the problems that many people are having, that many people are being dismissed. What is your recommendation now? We're, we're seeing hospitalizations down per 100,000 people in communities all across uh, Canada and the U.S. We're seeing decreased infection rates. Um, we're seeing basically fewer cases, but we are not testing. There was a time when we weren't testing, but where the wastewater rates, we could, we could tell that they were elevated and so there was still a, you know, a fair amount of COVID. But at this stage in the pandemic, people are really pretty much maskless. They're going about their yeah. business, going going to concerts, going out for dinner. Life as we knew it pre-pandemic is has returned to normal. Um, what do you say to people who have comorbidities, who are at greater risk of uh, suffering with COVID? people who have cancer, people who are on chemotherapy, um, people with autoimmune diseases, and, and to the general public, how do we deal with it as we move forward? Well, I don't remember the exact stats, but I think it's more than 50% of people have a um, risk factor for COVID, whether, well, 
if you had obesity, that's that's even higher, um, and the other conditions as well. So it is not something that you should take lightly. Okay, we've seen people who are quote unquote in pristine health. Uh-huh. have tragic outcomes. But when you already have hypertension, diabetes, you know, asthma, or any other conditions, you are at an increased risk of having serious complications, either right at the time of diagnosis or as we see further on. And we're only three years in this condition. Wait, five more years, 10 years. How, what would it look like then? And that's, for me, it's concerning. As much as I like to... You know, I'm not thinking about COVID like I did three years ago, checking the numbers, how many people got infected. It's still there. It's still in the back of my mind. You know, my mask stays with me when I'm, you know, seeing patients in the office. Like, that's not going anywhere. Um, We just need to be aware that this is a serious illness and you don't know how the dice will roll. That's that's absolutely correct. And, And even though people's symptoms... Um, may be rooted in the nervous system dysfunction, you know, in order to treat them, you know, first of all, healthcare providers need to understand that this is a thing. Long COVID is an illness. People's experiences are real. Uh, there is a definite inflammatory process that's going on in the brain that we, we see that through a lot of research has been done, autops- yeah. autopsies that have been done as well. Um, that this is an inflammatory process going on in the brain, but and that the treatment might involve comprehensive, multi, multidisciplinary teams um, for yeah. people who are suffering with this syndrome. One hundred percent. And if I may add, my concern is, as a society, we haven't done well with managing chronic illness and having multidisciplinary teams that are accessible, right? Yeah. So then you add COVID, Absolutely. like we've done a horrible job. It's time for the Bedroom Bulletin. Welcome back to the Sunday Night Health Show. Thanks so much for tuning in. We're going to get to the back to the bedroom segment in just one second. I just wanted to read a couple of text messages. Um, one from Kevin in Ontario. Touchwood, family of four, never got it, but we don't participate yet. Silly to ruin a child's lifelong health. And for what? Greed? Entitlement? No thanks. Love that, Kevin. I totally get that. Now here we have Farmer Johnny from Winnipeg, Manitoba says, many years exposed to large amounts of pesticides and DDT, lost my sense of taste and smell, must wear respiratory and nasal strips to breathe when working with chemicals on the farm. Thanks, Johnny. You know, this is the kind of thing, well, you shouldn't be working with chemicals on the farm, but I know I'm, I don't know much about farm life, but I do want to own a farm one day. (laughs) Anyway, um, but little dream of mine, a little side dream, maybe for a year or two. But um, so I don't really understand the pesticide thing, but I do understand the damage that it can cause and that a chronic illness can cause from some of the things in our lives. So thank you so much. Uh, That was Jim, actually, from Winnipeg, not Johnny. Um, I think he just calls himself Farmer Johnny. I remember having a patient who was a farmer and it was a uh, uh, video, virtual consult. And because this person was in another province from where I was, and they said um, that they were in a sexless marriage and they would have cheated 
had there been anyone around, but like their closest neighbor was, I don't know, a hundred miles away or something, <laughs> very far away. So there were hardly any people or anyway, that he was, would have um, been able to cheat with, but it certainly had crossed his mind. He'd been in a sexist marriage for about 10 years or so, maybe 15. It was a long time, that particular one. But this is something I see all the time in my clinical practice. And I and so I speak about it quite a bit. Um, I do half of my work in relationships and the other half and, and continence and sexual health education. And then the other half, I do kind of healthcare consulting. Um, in, in part, you can't, I guess you can't listen to people's troubles 40 hours a week. Um, but especially when they are, they're very similar. They're oftentimes the same issue and very few people address um, the infidelity or sexist marriage, I should say, which is really what I um, deal with. Not so much the infidelity because sexist marriage doesn't always lead to infidelity, but oftentimes it does. But, you know, the thing is infidelity isn't always related to a sexist marriage. Oftentimes there's infidelity, but they're still having sex in the marriage and very satisfying sex as well. So, um, but I, I have this conversation obviously a lot in my clinical practice, but I also have it with friends and acquaintances and dinner and at dinner parties. And, um, you know, because it's people are interested in the, and people really have a hard take on what's the right answer here. And, you know, is it, is it fear? to withhold sex and then not uh, allow somebody to satisfy their biological needs. I'm not saying that infidelity is the answer or cheating is the answer, but um, it is certainly a problem in many relationships and at least in a lot of the relationships that I see, but oftentimes the sexless marriage is related to vaginal dryness, painful sex, erectile dysfunction, um, substance use and abuse, you know, different medical conditions, pain, um, depression, anxiety, uh, obsessive compulsive disorder. I had a patient in my clinical practice whose partner, spouse, was obsessive about cleanliness and germs and um, would not allow the children to go to birthday parties or to have play dates or, um, and some of, of the behaviors were, um, you know, sounded to me like uh, they were related to obsessive compulsive disorder. And I remember this particular spouse was just shocked. You mean this is a disorder? This could be treated? When I basically said, you know, there are treatments for OCD. And it does sound like that. Obviously, they would need to go off and have a proper healthcare provider, psychiatrist, make the diagnosis of obsessive compulsive disorder. But it had definitely led to a sexless marriage. And, um, and so they had been suffering people in relationships where it's sexless and where it started out as, um, understanding and not that you are obligated to have sex with somebody. Um, but people in relationships have sexual needs and, you know, but sometimes there are it's sexless. And so those people are restricted from satisfying those needs outside of their relationship. Um, but the partners don't have any obligation to satisfy the needs for them within the relationship. And, you know, I realize that all of these statements are mutually inconsistent. 
and one of them has to break. That's the thing. And the one we expect to break most often is people are restricted from satisfying the needs outside of their relationship in which the partner, the frustrated partner does go outside of the relationship for the satisfaction. Um, you know, and oftentimes people will be in a relationship, in a marriage, in a sexless marriage, and then they go outside of the relationship and, you know, they cheat, they find somebody else. They don't want their marriage to break up. I've said this many often, many times before, um, but it does because it's a deal breaker for many people. But is this, is uh, staying not having your sexual needs met, is that the answer? Does one deny their own needs? Is, is it the expectation that the frustrated partner suppress their own needs? This seems like the noble solution, putting the relationship and the partner above one's needs. But what does that do to a person? It's, it's, you're not being true to yourself. It reduces the concept of a sincere need to a mere desire or a wish. And, and I, that, that is just such a true statement. I see that. I, I say that so many times, I, or I see it and I say it to myself. This person, their need, their desire has been reduced to a hope, a prayer, a begging. Um, some people might find this easier to do than others. And, and oftentimes people will say to me, I haven't cheated. Like it's a badge of honor. I've been in a sexless marriage for 10 years and I haven't cheated. And, you know, as though they're patting themselves on the back, they're, you know, ready to blow a gasket, but, and they're very frustrated and there are other issues that leads to other issues in the relationship. There's a lack of intimacy and connection and, you know, but, but should the relationship break up? That's another option. Um, or oftentimes that does happen is that, or, or, or people don't realize that they, they don't understand why the person cheated and they, because so often I'll, you know, I'll say to people, if your partner cheated in, you know, a couple presents to my clinical practice and, and says that, um, you know, it's been sexless for three years, five years, 10 years. 15 years. And oftentimes there's an unhealthy power in that relationship as well. Um, but I'll say to the person who does not want to engage in sex, you know, if your partner were to go outside of a relationship, you know, how would you feel? And they'd say, I'd kill them. It's the same response that I get every time. And if a, one partner voluntarily enters into a committed relationship, knowing that the other partner has certain needs, needs that according to the terms of the relationship, the vows of the marriage cannot be satisfied elsewhere. Does this imply some level of obligation or responsibility to either satisfy those needs or allow them to be satisfied by somebody else? I mean, that is the question. It's not for me to answer. It's for you to think about in your relationship and it's for you to answer. You take that leap, or do you stay in that relationship? Are you true to yourself? It's the sense of obligation that leads people to say that a refusal of sex is a betrayal on the same level as adultery. Is it fair to withhold sex from somebody that you 
allegedly care about and love and want to be married to or want to be in a relationship with. Is this fair to that person? But then again, is it fair when they go outside of the relationship? This can be devastating, absolutely devastating for people. And yet very few people have this, you know, uh, this sense that, gee, maybe the fact that we were not intimate contributed to my partner. And those who leave going outside of the relationship, those who can understand that, those who can admit that, those who can realize that their partner has needs that need to be satisfied. And this is not just men who go outside of the relationship. It's not just women who have low sexual desire. Men have low sexual desire as well. And men often have one of the most common things I see in my clinical practice is erectile dysfunction where the woman presents and says, you know, my male partner has erectile dysfunction and they're too embarrassed, too ashamed to get treatment for it. And therefore we have not been intimate for whatever number of years. And because many men feel very embarrassed, very ashamed, it's attached to their manlyhood, and they're too embarrassed to talk about erectile dysfunction. There are so many treatments for erectile dysfunction. And oftentimes it's in prevention. It's in leading a healthy life, reducing inflammation, um, exercise, sleep, cutting out alcohol and other substances, um, you know, stress, learning to manage stress. There are so many options. There are vacuum devices. There are intercavernosal injections. There's muse, pellets that are inserted into the urethra. There are many different ways to treat erectile dysfunction. Medications. Did I not even mention medications? I had a patient who was like, you know, I, and I, this is so common as well. I, I tried Viagra. It didn't work. Why didn't it work for me? It's like, well, Viagra and any of the PDE5 inhibitors, Cialis, Levitra, they need to work in, they only work in a testosterone rich environment. Um, you also need to be sexually aroused for them to work. And you often need to take them five to six times for them to start working. It doesn't often just work immediately or right away. But it's just something to ponder. If you're in a relationship and it's sexless or you're not getting the amount of sex that you feel you deserve or that you need in the relationship, you know, what are your thoughts around that? Of course, I think one of the best steps is to seek therapy, seek counseling. I, education, understand that desire does not come first. And in fact, it's responsive desire. Desire is responsive and desire and arousal, you know, they're interchangeable. And in fact, desire can come after arousal. Um, it's a biopsychosocial model developed by Dr. Rosemary Besson in Vancouver. And, you know, there are many different models uh, around it. And it speaks to a lot of people today because of the chronic over busyness of our lives. Fatigue's the number one reason for low sexual desire in a marriage. Just imagine if you took better care of yourself, you weren't so tired by the end of the day, or you just decided to change it up a little bit, have sex in the morning or in the afternoon on a weekend or schedule sex. And it just, you know, if we're talking twice a week. <laughs> Most people are satisfied with sex once or twice a week in a relationship. There's so much else going on. 
especially these days, um, that that's all it takes is, but to take care of yourself well enough that you can engage in sex one or two times a week in order to save your marriage or save your relationship, would you do it? Something to think about. Or would you take the easy way out if you were in a sexless marriage or you weren't getting this amount of sex that you needed? Would you actually go outside of the relationship and risk it all? The kids, the money, the house, the in-laws, the country club, the yacht club, the golf club, whatever club you belong to, whatever friends that you have, because people will take sides. It will change your life entirely. I often say, especially men, will not leave their relationship unless they're caught. And they're often caught. And so many people in my clinical practice, so many guys come in and they're just like, I heard you say it on the radio. People, you know, it was a password issue. That's how I didn't, I didn't have any password protection. And my wife saw everything. And, you know, it's not that I'm saying, I'll get a password and save your marriage. <laughs> Go ahead and do whatever you want. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm just saying there are ways to treat sexless marriage. But unfortunately, in this society, we don't talk about sex. And a lot of people feel, lawmakers feel that if you educate people about sex, they're going to have more sex at a younger age. But that's not the case. People are going to be educated. I mean, I'm educating people in their 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s. By 80, they kind of get it a little bit. Um, but unfortunately, they're not getting it. <laughs> and a lot of people aren't getting it out there. But it's a very, very important aspect of a relationship. Thanks for listening to the Sunday Night Health Show podcast. You can subscribe, rate, or review on your favorite podcast app. And if you've got a question about your health, the nurse is always in. So email me, nursetalk at hotmail.com, and I just might answer your question anonymously, of course, on next week's show. For now, have a happy and healthy week.